You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement-building show on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. And do check out our website and register by clicking on it, voicesfromthefrontlines.com. If you click on it and register, you'll get a weekly email that Channing and I put on telling you what's going on. Sometimes there'll be linked to a previous show and stuff like that. So we're very happy to have Professor Gregory Jenkins with us. And Gregory, I did look you up and I think your title is terrific. Uh, one of the few titles I thought was impressive. Professor of Meteoro Meteorology, Atmospheric Science, Geography, and African Studies at Penn State. What a terrific combination, especially since I know why don't you tell our listeners some, some, where that work leads you in your work in Africa? Well, um, initially I was just an atmospheric scientist, but I've been working on the continent for the last two and a half decades. Mm -hmm. And I realized that one narrow discipline can't really encompass all the things happening. And so I take that uh, I take that foundation from multiple disciplines to my work, uh, and at the end of the day, it's always about people. So that's that's how it all came about. Yeah, it's great. I mean, at the Strategy Center, we say we're doing work to affect the totality of urban life. So the discipline is uh, revolution and sociology and. But we also did a book called L.A.'s Lethal Air, where we really learned the environmental science. So at the Strategy Center, we're, we're big on theory and practice, but you got to know things. You know, you actually have to learn things. So, yeah. um, I mean, obviously, the uh, long pain of Africa at the hands of the U.S. white settler state is bad enough. And then the neocolonialism brought back by the European and U.S. Uh, colonial powers is bad enough on top of that. But now the ecological crisis and the climate crisis, yeah. again, generated by the same white European U.S. settler states is creating a third attack on Africa. At the Strategy Center, we really want to develop an Africa project. And Greg, we look to you a lot because you're one of the first people we met in the environmental justice movement, we met you in New Orleans, mm -hmm. that has a vision that we'd like to figure out more how to work together. But why don't you start by telling us, go back a little bit, two and a half decades, maybe give us a little bit of how it started and then maybe the last two years, and then we'll okay. go to the present. Okay, well, you know, it started for me as an undergrad 
at Lincoln University right. where I was studying physics and uh, and I started to learn a lot about uh, a long-term drought in West Africa. Right. And from that point on, that's where I felt I wanted to make my contribution, which was to understand why they were experiencing decades of drought. Um, and, you know, initially it was, you know, a lot of theories, but I think we all come to conclusions that more than likely anthropogenic climate change is driving, drove that three decade long drought and is probably now driving extreme flooding in many places in West Africa. And we still don't have the ability to predict even on short time scales, like 12 hours away, Wow. We can't really say, hey, you're in extreme flooding. So the last few years, I've focused more on some of these, what you would call short-term uh, acute events that happen, impacting millions of people. Quite often, they aren't even aware of what's coming. So that's, that's kind of been my focus. It, and all of this has been around like normal research projects, but... I feel like the continent teaches you so much that as long as you're aware of what's going on around you, you start to see these connections and new questions come to mind. So my last project has been around air pollution. Really, that came from just normal measurements in the field. But I started to realize that like the pollution levels are very high. And uh, it's not just from cars, but there are natural sources like the Sahara Desert, which makes the air extremely bad. The air quality is very bad and probably drives disease. So that's where I am now. And we're trying to build a network of measurements to really help people understand the environment around them. Well, that sounds great and, and very impressive. Uh, you know, again, I, the reason I talk about the Strategy Center is because I'm thrilled to have an organization, you know what I mean, that I was with the Congress of Racial Equality. I worked with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. I worked with Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee. I was with Students Dem Democratic Society. I worked with the Black Panther Party. If you're not in an organization, then what do you do? You know, so we're excited to have an organization that wants to do small amounts of work to help uh, and understand. Let's start with understanding what the direct impact is of U.S. emissions in particular and L.A. emissions on the people of Africa because, you know, L.A. is allegedly the auto capital of the world. There's 10 million people in the county and 7 million cars. Mm. Uh, so even apparently the kids are driving, you know, the infants must be driving cars. So given the uh, intersection, and I'm sure you've done some studies on that, between criteria pollutants, air toxins, and greenhouse gases, all coming out of the, the tailpipe of the car. Why don't you talk about some of your studies in Africa around that? So um, I think it's become more holistic. And in that sense, you know, I think about the energy that people are using to drive cars, for example, how that creates air pollution, which ultimately leads to poor health outcomes whether we're talking about Houston or LA and quite often in very poor communities 
Or if we jump over to Africa, we're talking about, you know, Lagos, which has probably got 20 million people, an amazing large number of cars, uh, Dakar, all of these cities, you're in them and you have to cover your face because the pollution is that bad. And there are really no policies. There aren't, there aren't like EPAs that say, oh, this is so high. In fact, it's worse because we don't even have enough measurements to know the level of the pollutants. And we know they're bad, but until we quantify those, we really can't say what the health impacts are. They're negative, we're sure, but, but we can't say without those measurements. Well, you know, Greg, that uh, first of all, again, this is very exciting. Um, when the Strategy Center first got involved in environmental justice work, and we worked with our mutual friends, Dr. Robert Board, Dr. Beverly Wright, we're talking about 25, 28 years ago, and we've been very close friends ever since. I also came to understand the issue of measurement. Uh, the South Coast Air Quality Management District, under a guy named James Lentz, actually did amazing work because they must have spent five years getting the most accurate measurements about dry cleaners and perchloroethylene and uh, every single industry in Los Angeles, and they could understand the emissions, quantify the emissions, and right. then it came in with specific policies, which people called command and control, which they were. That's the whole point. We command you, and we control you to stop doing that. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, are there African nations that either have anything resembling a South Coast Air Quality Management District? Are no. you trying to make a relationship with any specific African nation to set something up? And how do you operate? So there are three questions. Does anybody have one? Is there one you're trying to fit, create? And how do you operate in the absence of them? Well, you know, if I showed you a map of the number of measurements on a daily basis, it would just startle you. And I'll give you the link, any real time. And what we need is real time measurements. Right. Okay, they have to be open so people can know what they're breathing. Um, those numbers are extremely low. And if a government is doing a measurement, they may or may not be making those known to the public in real time. And again, I, I, I mentioned real time because quite often when you're dealing with mega cities, the pollution happens, spikes, morning, evening, sometimes midday. Right. You have to know that, okay? And you have to know how long people might be exposed to a particular pollutant because it might matter if you have a cardiovascular disease versus a respiratory disease. Okay, so we need to know those things, but we don't know those. Now, over the last 10 months or so, we started building a network in Senegal and Cape Verde and Ivory Coast it, it, because we need measurements. And we're doing it from a research perspective first, but we have to be able to show, like, this is what's really going on. And we're talking to folks in government, but my opinion, and it's the question I always get is, is the data available? I'm like, yeah, no data will be held back. This is health. This is not someone trying to make a bug. This is you knowing that you've got to take your asthmatic kid 
outside into hazardous conditions and making a decision, not necessarily waiting on any government or even television, but you making a decision. So the hope is that we're ultimately, and there's a lot of smart people out here, especially young people, you know, make these mobile phone apps where the pollution data can be known at any given time. Now, it's gonna take a long time to build that network out. The good thing though is technology has driven down the cost of sensors to the point where we can do these measurements for several hundred dollars. Wow. And that's the difference. So we don't need the $20,000 piece of equipment. And we've been comparing our values to the EPAs to figure out what the biases are. They're pretty good, okay? We know when we're when the air quality is being very bad. Um, but, but the point is we have to build that network out. And, you know, the funny thing that you learn about knowledge is that once it's created, some other person can come and do more with it. Okay, so my idea might be one thing, but if I unleash that into the hands of some young people, who knows what they're gonna create? So the main thing is to share the knowledge, which is also saying share the data so that people can make their own decision and develop. Well, that's, yeah, that's being a science organizer, right? And uh, very impressive. You know, when I did the book, Ellie's Lethal Air, I just began to understand all these crazy connections like particulate matter goes in the air and then uh, lands in your lungs and you can't get rid of it. So it's both an irritant, then it begins a respiratory problem. Uh, You know, a doctor, one of the doctors said, you think it's a lung attack, but it's really a heart attack, you know, because the relationship between uh, cardiovascular and pulmonary. And then we just had Lori Garrett on, who, uh, you know her, she did the Coming Plague book. Mm-hmm. We, got, we had her on uh, last week. And she said that COVID-19 is presenting as pneumonia, but she thinks it's overwhelmingly cardiovascular because almost 100% of the people who get it have hypertension, diabetes, mm-hmm. or asthma. Yes. So what, what's your thinking on that? And, and is no, that, that, that uh, hey, you know, our communities have been really hit hard by this thing. Right, um, terrible. And, you know, we lost friends. Tomorrow I'm going to a viewing for my cousin. Look, it's real. It's hitting us. We have the comorbidities, there's no doubt about it. What worries me about Africa, and really, in a most serious way, is that we know asthma and cardiovascular disease and hypertension and diabetes, they're exploding on the continent. With you know, the import of all of the fast foods and lifestyles that just aren't healthy. So it's coming. But when you add that into the fact that we have the fastest growing continent in the world, we don't have enough medical facilities to really deal with a massive outbreak. The, the, the informal sector drives most of the economies. These governments do not create the industries needed to provide young people with jobs. Those, all of those materials go out to Europe. People don't have jobs, so they have to create but it's not enough money. 
Right. So it's, it's extremely worrying. And look, we all come from similar genetic material. If you're an African-American, if you live in the Caribbean, if you're in Brazil, you probably got folks that came from West Africa or along the coast. So when we, in the first days of this COVID, we felt hopeful. We like the numbers are so low in Africa. Maybe we're, maybe we're not going to get it, but it, but that was false. I mean, these, our communities have been just slammed to the ground. So that should be a sign of warning to leaders in West Africa. Now they've opened their economies back up following the U S and then that's what makes me really worried that they, that this thing could run away over the next six months. And just to kind of follow up why I'm at saying that, I don't mean to go over, but the rainy season is about to start in West Africa. Right. The data shows us that the number of infections go up with the start of the rainy season. So you have weakened immune system from just infections. They're typically acute respiratory infections. Then we get our vector-borne and waterborne diseases that come in during the summer. So we don't know how the infrastructure, the healthcare infrastructure, or individuals are going to fare through this. And, it, and for me, it's like when I look at the tests each day, I follow the COVID page. There's not enough tests that have been done. So it's a big, big guessing game. I'm, I'm super worried about the whole situation. Those governments really need to provide a safety net for their citizens. Maybe don't buy the military equipment. Don't do all those other things. Keep, put the money into the public health sector now. Well, obviously we agree and we don't mainly at the, at the Strategy Center or Voices uh, get involved in the politics of Africa because our government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. Uh, having said that, uh, during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, a lot of us were, of course, involved with either African Liberation Support Committee or the anti-apartheid movement. Are there any governments in Africa that you think are using the state and using public money in, the, in a progressive manner right now? Where is the most hope, even if it's technocratic, more than, you know, I mean, even if it's not liberal, what's going on? I've heard, you know, good things about Rwanda, about Madagascar. They're dealing with this. But I think the problem is our system of thinking. Many of the leaders look to Europe and U.S. as like an example. I mean, they don't really necessarily look within. They look outside. And that could be very problematic again because you really have to deal with your own circumstance. And if anything, you should be developing regional infrastructure in terms of how countries work together to deal with this pandemic. It's not going away. I mean, it might be another year and a half before we get a vaccine. So what are people gonna do? You know, you know, if you get it, maybe there are cures, but no one wants to get it because you don't know if you're gonna survive it. And that's, that's the real problem. One of my colleagues said, well, it, you know, Africa has the youngest population on, on earth, might just get younger as a result of COVID. 
And so there's some hard days ahead. There's hard days ahead for all of us, in my opinion. But I just really feel when people don't have resources, when they can't even buy an inhaler for asthma, you're just thinking like, well, how do they cope with this? Everybody's living together. There's not enough income. I don't know. But out of that, I might say this, Eric, is that I feel like if communities could come and think outside of the fear factor, something positive could happen, especially with the youth, especially with the youth. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, organizers are fundamentally optimistic. Um, you know, I have so many articles in my head I'm trying to do, and one is sort of the, what is the safety net in the United States? Hunger, mm-hmm. poverty, cold, hot, police brutality, eviction, hypertension, prison, mm-hmm. death, pain and death. The, the, the United States... I'm telling you, we work in South Central Los Angeles, shockingly does not care what you do. I mean, the homeless, the homeless, they all talk about it. They're generating the homeless. This capitalism is is really, I mean, it's not abstractly bad. It's really bad, especially for black people. And there's not even a, during this, it's relevant back to Africa, Greg, is that, you know, in the 60s, I was in Newark. And the poverty pro with the Newark Community Union Project, and the poverty program came in, and for a hot moment, they actually were trying to solve it. You know, they were trying to figure out. All right, so let's figure out. So you need housing, right? Okay, we can do start building more housing, aid to families dependent children. We could up the level of of the, the benefit, up the level of the the furniture. Um, all right, you need health. Let's start building community clinics. They actually took every indices of problem and for two or three years actually tried to solve it, which is incredible. Right. And then the problem was that the black people rose up and said, you know, yeah, but we have a lot of ideas on what to do now that we're discussing this. And the, the big city mayors got so scared because they were on, you know, in their face every day. They went to Washington and said, let's end this thing. Just give me the money. You know, I just want a direct grant. I don't want no poverty program because these poor people threaten the hell out of me. So back to Africa, are there governments, are there social movements, are there movements now of people demanding things among the young people? Are there movements of scientists? Are there movements of anything that you've seen that's remotely hopeful? I feel like the young people are definitely demanding change. They gra- they go to college, they graduate, there are no jobs. Right. Then they're trying to leave and take their talent to the US or Europe and get paid nothing as a taxi driver. So there is a definite demand. However, the infrastructure still isn't there. Now, which is why I feel like in a certain sense, the knowledge is what needs to be shared. If you wanted to create food systems, teach people how to build small greenhouses, okay? And the, the truth is, you can actually do more than you thought you could do. So to me, innovation has to come into it. 
but you got to put it into the hands of people who want to do something for their communities. It means that you have to kind of leave the mindset of how much money do I make? Because how much money doesn't even matter if you're talking about the community. Right. If you have all the money and everyone's poor around you, are you really helping? <laughs> That's my question. So we really have to figure out how to distribute and scale out using many new things that are coming on and many things which are old. Traditional knowledge is there. Use what we got. Let's build. Let's go. Well, Greg, one of the things that I want to ask you continuing is that in the middle of this maelstrom of events and contradictions, tell us what your daily life looks like. Like where, when you go to West Africa, where, where would you start? Where, where would you go? So normally I'll start in Dakar, a city. Right. Um, but building these networks of measurements, we got to go out into the countryside. It's not easy. The people are wonderful. The work is hard. We have not yet figured out some things like how to keep the power going or how to keep the internet going so we can keep the measurements going. We're working on that because we know we have the sun. So we know we have a, we know we have a solar solution along the way, right? We're gonna find that pretty soon. Um, the communication, making the data real time is also a challenge. Um, but, but to me, it's, it's really thinking about how do we communicate that to normal people? So that's the, the deal. And I, I'm just really trying to find enough young people in Senegal to help build this network and then you guys have to be the curators of it because it matters the most to you. Just like if you're in Houston or some other place where you have a toxic site near you, those communities have to do it. Now, I'm not saying my colleagues in the government or research won't do it, but quite often the problem with all of this is that it takes so long to publish this stuff and people are dying today. <laughs> I can't wait for a year to publish something. I need to make sure that data is real time now and people know where it's at. That's our struggle. Absolutely. Tell us more about the people. When you go, tell us about the villages. What does it look like? What's your day look like when you say, hey, I'm Gregory Jenkins. I'm from Penn State. Or the, by now, I assume they know you or you're affiliated with folks. You know, yeah. I've, I've been in communities for years and they, they know me, you know, it's, I wake up in the morning and that's the community. Tell us about some of the communities. Well, the, like there are all kinds of varieties of people, right? You know, you, you travel north towards the Mauritanian border. It becomes more desert-like. Um, you have subsistence farmers. Uh, you go to the big cities. You have the, the young smart cats there. Uh, I, I just feel like when you tell them, when you bring a narrative to, to help people, because they know the stories. I ask all of them, do you have people in your family has asthma? They're like, yes, no doubt about it. Or if it's around climate, do you think the weather's becoming more extreme? Yeah, it is. So there are underlying narratives that you can build on. And when people know that you're doing something to help them, to help protect them from something that seems to be encroaching 
all the time, I never feel any kind of resistance to that. I might feel more resistance from my colleagues with PhDs who might say, why are you doing that? Shouldn't you be thinking about peer reviewed this, that, and the other? I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking about it, but that's not (laughs) going to really stop the problem. (laughs) I mean, we need solutions and you, you find solutions on the ground. And you talk to people and you look at people and you say, well, what do you think about this? And no one, I mean, we have sensors in high schools, but no one has been like, no. And we tell those teachers, look, you can use this data to help your kids in algebra, in math. Right. It sounds great. It does sound great. I mean, you know, it's funny, organizers, uh, and you are one, they have an optimistic, we have an optimistic personality. I mean, you could be in the middle of anything. And you're talking about it, but there is still the element of hope because there's real people there. You know, yeah. you, don't, you don't talk about, well, there's floods and there's droughts and there's this disease and that. We get that. But that's not what we're, we're talking about, the hope of black Africa rising up. We're hoping, you know, we still have hope of black United States rising up again after having beaten back so badly. Um, you know, we have a national, we're going to be opening up in 2021 our National Leadership School for Strategic Organizing. And it's a, it's a complicated thing. It's it maybe a residency program and everything. But I don't know. I'm just picturing a couple of African organizers coming for a week or 10 days mm-hmm. and going around South OA and seeing the work we do. And then maybe, I'm just dreaming out loud, then we go to Africa, me and Channing, go to Africa and meet them. Yeah. I mean, there are similar problems. There are uh, major OPEC exporters in Africa. Right, right. The environment around those 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 oil fields is devastating. It's just real it's bad, and they need to know what are the best. Pra- I feel like when we're sharing knowledge, people think about the best practices or the next strategy or the next tactic to deal with. First, is protecting themselves from an environment that might be dangerous or cancerous, Uh, protecting their children, saving something for their children and their grandchildren. If you destroy the environment today, what are they gonna have? So it's all there and and it's built. And, And the continent has a very long history. It might look like it's smothered by, uh, I don't know, this modernism, but <laughs> people know their histories and they know it for a long time. And they know about natural solutions and they know about things that people told them. But that, you know, that knowledge is often, again, blotted out um, because people just assume, oh, they don't know anything. So I feel like the key point is to connect. Sounds like you're doing. You're you're a good connector, Channing. You have anything I want to uh, tie yeah, this was, up? Go ahead, Channing. This I is was Channing just Martinez. listening to this whole story, and I had to remind myself what what was that opening film of the Pan African Film Festival? And I just found it. The name was Hero. Right. And I bring it up because it really goes through the story of 
I can't remember his name, but the character was from uh, the Caribbean and he goes to Africa and he gets politicized and he starts making all these different connections with different governments in Africa. He goes to Guinea-Bissau, he goes to South Africa, he goes to all these nations. And sadly, and it turns out the CIA is actually following him the whole time and trying to overthrow all these governments the whole time. But it's interesting to find, you know, to hear about organizing on different levels, going country to country and how do you really organize people to then move a whole country to implement right. something that they've never implemented ever before in their life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was just my quick thought that I was thinking in my head during this time. What do you think, Greg? I always say start with the young people and find out, find a common, find a common line. Um, this COVID, which is interesting is, we've worked with youth group in Gambia and they're, they've been creating masks, but the mat, the face coverings are also going to be important next winter when all the pollution from dust wow. comes up. So we build capacity without really knowing how to do it. I've been talking to Dr. Wright about how do we get masks to Africa to protect just normal people from pollution, from cars, and these big dust storms and biomass burning. It turns out that COVID-19 came, people need masks. We talked to the youth about like, create your masks, and they did it. (laughs) And they're gonna connect to the youth group in Senegal. But they can use those next winter. And as far as, it's just been a challenge. But it's happened. Gregory, it's really a pleasure to talk to you. Very inspiring. Are there, do you have a, a nonprofit with a website? Are there nonprofits in Africa that you think our listeners, if they so desire, could go online and learn more and possibly contribute to their work? Um, I'll look. I have a lot of colleagues in, on the continent, so I'm sure they'll be able to provide me with some links to to nonprofits or to uh, youth groups that are out there trying to make a difference um, and they're doing it, you know, without much resource. Well, fortunately, we have a couple of days before we're broadcasting. So if you send it, especially to Channing Martinez, we -hmm. will end after your interview, which is ending now, we will uh, read those links and put them up on, on this, the screen in different ways and and especially when we download it for at voicesfromthefrontlines.com because the show is every Tuesday at three to four. And then usually by Thursday morning it's up on Stitcher and SoundCloud and uh Apple and voicesfromthefrontlines.com. And Gregory, you're doing you're doing amazing work. Every time I talk to you, you're you're very I don't know. You're very ambitious, which so are we. Very impressed. Your energy level is fantastic. And let's do this more often. All right. And uh, I'll definitely link you in. Uh, Channel, I'll send you this one, this one group, youth group in Gambia. They've been amazing because they have been fighting a group that just burns, just like waste comes there all the time. They burn their five schools 
right there. It's amazing. I've been there, can hardly breathe, young kids walking. And uh, they've been trying to address that, climate change and gardens and helping people. So I feel like they're there. And it just I'll connect you with folks. And then I'll reach out to some of my other colleagues who are also um, working with non nonprofits. Well, you, you just, the voice you heard throughout was Professor J Gregory Jenkins at, P at Penn State and uh, doing multiple works, all ending with uh, Africa. And the Strategy Center and Voices cares deeply about the people of Africa. So this is great, and we'd love to have you on more. Thanks for everything, Greg. It's a pleasure. Uh, talk welcome. to you soon. All right. Take care. Thanks. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. Uh, Voicesfromthefrontlines.com is our website. You're on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. And we, we've been doing this every week now. Uh, in the middle of these programs, it feels more organic to talk to you about giving money to the station that I don't, I'm not against the fund drives. They have to exist. But, of course, if in the middle of a full program, the host could just say to folks, hey, look, you understand the station needs serious money. Millions, which is not a lot, a few millions can, can get it through everything. And yes, you have 5, 10, 15, 20, 100, 200, 300 is how this built. So please call 818-985-5735, 818-985-5735 and contribute. There'll be people to answer the phones, and those people will be happy to take your call. And maybe the next time the fund drive comes, it could be shorter. And we'd like this to be more the model of how KPFK raises money. And we're very happy uh, with Kevin Fleming and with Anya Fields, who have been very supportive of our work. And give some money and make them happy and make us happy. Jenny Martinez, last thoughts on this segment. This has been a great segment with uh, Gregory Jenkins. I remember I met him at my first time going to New Orleans to the uh, Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, um, and they have a climate conference every year um, for HBCUs. And he got up there and he said a lot of great things, much of which I don't remember because it was very scientific. <laughs> um, and then if that wasn't enough, he actually had students up there also presenting, you know, real live projects on new innovations that they want to bring to the environmental justice sphere as well. And so it's always great to speak with him and I hope to speak with him soon again. We didn't earn the right to fly to beat. We've been running, beating, talk down because our skin. I shine, shine right through the hay. I'm a king, she a queen. They all know we're great. I know you're a fan. Who you want my style? Can you rock a pain chain? Can you rock my sorrows? I know they're afraid because I'm educated. This is Channing Martinez, and you're listening to Voices from the Frontlines on KPFK. 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, and streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. The clip you're about to hear is a great rebroadcast 
of our tribute to Lorraine Hansberry originally aired in 2018. Eric spends time highlighting a moment of transformation for Lorraine Hansberry in which she decided to support the great Stalin action in the 1960s. But he also praises the great role that the black communist, anti-imperialist, pro-feminist tradition played in the black freedom movement. As always, we love hearing from you and want to receive more responses, questions, and points of feedback on the show. Please send your questions and insights to eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com and channing at thestrategycenter.org. You can visit our website, www.voicesfromthefrontlines.com, to hear all previous shows or listen to a show via SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. I have a lot of themes in my life that are very important to me that keep me going. Uh, it's rather shocking to me that I'm in past 50 years of active participation in the civil rights, anti-war, anti-imperialist, pro-socialist, the Times communist uh, movement. And a lot of people ask me, what keeps you going? And I I don't even understand the question. I mean, it's like, because I want to. I mean, that's what I believe. So I get up every morning and that's what I believe. But there are very important figures in my life who have been role models for me. And a growing number of them are in what we call the black communist tradition. But in particular, my closest friends politically are what I'll call the black communist pan-Africanist tradition. And one of the, and, and we would add in some way the black pan-Africanist feminist tradition of Lorraine Hansberry. So a lot of you, I think, have seen the uh, play uh, Raisin in the Sun, but I don't think you fully grasp, I don't fully grasp what an amazing political thinker Lorraine Hansberry was, what an important political figure and a beyond tragic death at 34 years old because of pancreatic cancer. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about her life, and then we're going to play this about eight-minute clip. Then we're going to play To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, which is actually her slogan. I didn't realize that that Nina Simone picked up to do a song uh, to honor Lorraine Hansberry, who was her close friend. You get all this? So, and And Nina Simone, who is one of the patron saints of the show, was also in the black, feminist, pan-Africanist, pro-communist tradition. Lorraine Vivian Hansberry, May 19th, 19th. Hansberry was the first black female author to have a play performed on Broadway. Her best-known work, a play, The Raisin in the Sun, highlights the life of black Americans living under racial segregation in Chicago. Hansberry's family had struggled against segregation, challenging a restricted covenant, eventually provoking the Supreme Court case Hansberry versus Lee. So that's to say her father actually was essentially the character in the play she did. The title of the play was taken from the poem Harlem by Langston Hughes, quote, what happens to a dream defer? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? And the next line is, or does it explode? At the young age of 29, 
She won the New York Drama Critics Circle Award, making her the first African-American dramatist, the fifth woman, the youngest playwright to do so. After she moved to New York, Hansberry worked at the pan-Africanist newspaper, Freedom, where she dealt with intellectuals such as Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois, parenthesis, major intellectual and cultural figures who were very, very close to the Communist Party. Much of her work during the time concerned the African struggle for liberation and their impact on the world. Hansberry has been identified as a lesbian and sexual freedom is an important topic in several of her works. She died of cancer at the age of 34. Hansberry inspired Nina Simone's song to be young, gifted, and black. Um, I'm now going to play, or we're going to play, about an eight or nine minute selection. And just one more second, Kiana. Um, there's, she's going to refer to the issue of the stall, and I, I want to explain it ahead of time. I actually joined CORE in September of 1964 as a field organizer. In April of 1964, just before I got there, CORE proposed what's called a stall-in. What was happening is that the World's Fair at Flushing Meadows then was going to be this enormous, enormous, uh, multi-even back then, billion-dollar construction project where uh, countries from all over the world were building entire uh, exhibits, you know, full-fledged buildings that were going to last for about two years. And black and Puerto Rican workers were not getting any of those jobs. They were all going to white construction workers. So CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, especially Brooklyn CORE and Bronx CORE, two of the more militant chapters, uh, Isaiah Brunson, Herb Callender, they proposed a stall-in. What they said was, we're going to take cars, junky cars with no gas in them. We're going to go out on the freeway and just leave them. And we're going to stall in, and we're going to walk away, and you folks, especially white folks, are not going to get out to Flushing Meadows. So Mayor Wagner at the time said, CORE is putting a gun to the head of people uh, in New York. What gun to the head meant is that if we happen to shoot them, because once you start using the analogy, this was a nonviolent protest, but then people were saying, but what if babies die? And what if you're, you know, everything they could come up with? Of course, babies were dying every day in Harlem and nobody gave a damn. So it was a great idea. In fact, it was one of the reasons I later joined CORE, and it caused a great commotion. And so this clip begins with Lorraine Hansberry saying, when the F Stalins first came, my first reaction was, don't do this. Don't do this. It's, it's a little too radical. And then I came to understand why we need black revolution in the face of the white backlash. Okay, so now we're going to play the clip. Was it ever so apparent we need this dialogue? <laughs> talk about 300 years and four minutes. I wrote a letter to the New York Times recently which didn't get printed, which is getting to be my rapport with the New York Times. They said that it was too personal. What it, 
what it concerned itself with was I was in a bit of a stew over the Stalin. Because when the Stalin was first announced, I said, oh my God, now everybody's going crazy, you know, tying up traffic, what's the matter with you know, who needs it? And then I noticed the reaction, starting in Washington and coming on up to New York, among what we're all here calling the, the white liberal circles, which was something like, you know, you Negroes act right or you're going to ruin everything we're trying to do. You know. <laughs> And that got me to thinking more seriously about the strategy and the tactic that the Stalin intended to accomplish. And so I sat down and wrote a letter to the New York Times about the fact that I am of a generation of Negroes that comes after a whole lot of other generations. And my father, for instance, who was, uh, you know, real American type American, successful businessman, uh, very civic-minded and so forth, it was the sort of American who put a great deal of money, a great deal of his really extraordinary talents, and a great deal of passion into everything that we say is the American way of going after goals. That is to say that he moved his family into a restricted area where no Negroes were supposed to live, and then proceeded to fight the case in the courts, all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And this cost a great deal of money. It involved the assistance of NAACP attorneys and so on. And it is the way of struggling that everyone says is the proper way to do, and it eventually uh, resulted in a, a decision against restrictive covenants, which is very famous, Hansberry versus Lee. And uh, that was very much applauded. But the problem is, that Negroes are just as segregated in the city of Chicago now as they were then. And my father died a disillusioned exile in another country. That is the reality that I am faced with when I get up and I read that some Negroes my own age and younger say that we must now lie down in the streets, tie up traffic, stop ambulances, do whatever we can, take to the hills if necessary with some guns, and fight back, you see. This is, this is the t difference. And I wrote to the Times and said, you know, can't you understand that this is the perspective from which we are now speaking? It isn't as if we got up today and said, you know, what can we do to irritate America? You know, it's because that since 1619, Negroes have tried every method of communication, of transformation of their situation from petition to the vote, everything. We've, all, we've tried it all. There isn't anything that hasn't been exhausted. Isn't it rather remarkable that we can talk about a people who were publishing newspapers while they were still in slavery in 1827, you see? They've been doing everything, writing editorials, Mr. Wexler, for a long time, uh, you know. And now the charge of impatience is simply unbearable. Uh, I would like to submit that the problem is that, yes, there is a problem about white liberals. I think there's something horrible that Norman Podhoritz, for instance, can sit down and write the kind of trash that he did at this hour. That is to say that a, a distinguished American thinker can literally say that he is more disturbed at the sight of a mixed couple 
or the, that anti-Semitism from Negroes and anti-Semitism from anybody is horrible and disgusting, and I don't care where it comes from, but anti-Semitism somehow from a Negro apparently upsets him more than it would from a German fascist, you see. This, this was the implication of what really gets to him. Well, you have to understand that when we are confronted with that, we wonder who we are talking to and how far we're going to go. The problem is we have to find some way with these dialogues to show and to encourage the white liberal to stop being a liberal and become an American radical. But then it wouldn't, when that becomes true, some of the really eloquent things that were said before about the basic fabric of our society, which after all is the thing which must be changed, you know, uh, to, to, to really solve the problem. You know, the, 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 the basic organization of American society is the thing that has Negroes in the situation that they are in and never let us lose sight of it. Uh, when we then talk with that understanding, it won't be so difficult for people like Mr. Wexler, whose sincerity I wouldn't dream of challenging. When I say to him, his sincerity is one thing. I don't have to, to agree with his position. But his, it wouldn't be so difficult then for me to say, when, I, when someone uses the term Cold War liberal, that it is entirely different, you see, the way that you would assess the Vietnamese war and the way I would, because I can't believe... that anyone who is given what an American Negro is given, you know, our viewpoint, can believe that a government which has at its disposal a Federal Bureau of Investigation which cannot ever find the murders of Negroes and by that method never, no, and shows that it cares really very little about American citizens who are black really are over somewhere fighting a war for a bunch of other colored people, you know, uh, several thousands miles, you just have a different viewpoint. This, this is why we want the dialogue, to, to explain that to you. See, it isn't a question of, of patriotism and loyalty. My, my brother fought for this country, my grandfather before that, and so on. That's all a lot of nonsense when we criticize. The point is that we have a different viewpoint because we've, you know, we've been kicked in the face often and, and the, the vantage point of Negroes is entirely different. And uh, these are some of the things we're trying to say. I don't want to go past my time, please. Uh, what a brilliant woman. What an amazing voice, uh, use of language, use just the incredible intellect. Uh, I feel so much love for Lorraine Hansberry. Uh, you know, when I do my, anal my, do my sort of textual analysis of Malcolm, I, I could, you know, I just watch his brain work and all the amazing uses of language. Let me just do a few here. Uh, but let me give you, again, the context. I'm lucky. I mean, I, mean, I really am lucky that I've <laughs> been alive a lot. And though, like, for instance, uh, James Wexler was the head of the New York Post. He's an anti-communist Cold War liberal. They were all, after World War II, 
you know, they're so-called democratic socialists, but they support U.S. imperialism. Norman Baharitz is a, a Jewish right-wing liberal, anti-black, horrible. He, I think he was the head of commentary or something. So these were these real right-wing liberals. In other words, they were liberals. They were for the Democratic Party uh, and for capitalism and for U.S. imperialism and against the Soviet Union. So he said that first her father died in disillusionment and exile. I'd like to find out where he left. I mean, here's a man who won a famous civil rights case in front of the Supreme Court. Now, she said uh, Chicago is segregated, at a sh- Chicago is segregated today in 2018. She said that a lot of people are now willing to stop ambulances, take to the hills with guns, meaning we've had it since 1619. This was the period of, well, we can't wait, militancy, militancy, people just absolutely fed up. The reference to 1619, we have to know that 2019 will be the 400th anniversary of the beginning of uh, horrible slavery inside the United States, and we want to do a lot of things to to celebrate 400 years of black resistance to slavery, and we got to figure it out. She said impatience is unbearable, that black people were publishing newspapers in 1827 while they were still in slavery. There's another quote. It's very interesting. Uh, I got another quote I'll tell you about. But she says, there's a basic failure of us. The basic fabric of our society must be changed. That is to say, the plight of the Negro is tied to the basic fabric. of What she's saying is that's tied to capitalism. It's interesting that in 1964, which is very early, 1965, SDS had the March on Washington in April of 1965. SNCC did not come out with, hell no, we won't go until 1966. I don't know when. Uh, Dr. King did not, I think 66 was also Muhammad Ali. Dr. King came out against the war in April 67. So here she's talking about Vietnam in 1964. And... uh, you know, she says we have a different point of view because we've been kicked in the face. Um, I'm just sort of struck by the unique kind of poetic, uh, passionate, super intellectual and super soulful at the same time uh, way that she argues that's just each great speaker is different and Lorraine Hansberry is just, just absolutely magnificent. And now we're going to play To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, written by her dear close friend, Nina Simone. Uh, There's a wonderful quote that apparently Lorraine Hansberry said to a group of people, it's very important to be young and gifted, but it's even more important to be young, gifted, and black. And in that context, let's play Nina Simone. Oh, oh, oh. 